1: Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. It's the first of the month, and that means rent is due for a lot of Californians, if they can even make rent. Before the coronavirus hit, housing and housing affordability seemed to be the state's biggest problems, and there were lots of proposals in Sacramento to fix them. But is getting more roofs over people's heads still a big issue for Governor Gavin Newsom and the state legislature? I asked my colleague KQED housing reporter Aaron Baldessari what happened to Sacramento's intense focus on housing.
2: You know, housing is still a big priority, but I'd say that the appetite for big, bold ideas that was really the focus at the beginning of the year has waned.
1: And more immediately, what's being done to protect renters from the economic consequences of the pandemic? Namely, anything being done so that they can stay in their rental units?
2: Yeah. So we know that once eviction moratoriums uh, expire across the state, there's a huge risk that a lot of people will end up with eviction notices on their doorstep. So. There's some legislation by Assemblymember David Chu, AB 1436, that'd make it illegal to evict someone for non-payment of rent during the pandemic and for 90 days afterwards. Uh, under that bill, tenants would be able to pay back their landlords over the course of 15 months. But a lot of people are saying that you also need some sort of relief for renters who are just never going to be able to make up those missed payments. So for that, Senate leadership proposed a bill It's now called SB 1410. It would help by providing tax credits to landlords. So those tax credits Landlords could sell on the open market so they could get cash now, or they could use them in later years to pay fewer taxes. Tenants would then be on the hook for paying back that missed rent, but they'd be paying it back to the state, and they could do so over the course of the next 10 years.
1: This is obviously a huge issue in in Los Angeles and San Francisco and so many other cities. When it comes to unhoused people, is there any homelessness-related legislation that's gotten your attention?
2: The question's really coming down to funding and what can be funded. But there's still a couple big ideas that really set out some big goals for the state. So one is Assemblywoman Autumn Burke's bill that would make housing a human right for children and families by 2026. And another one that would require cities and counties to put together a plan to reduce homelessness in their communities by 90 percent based on 2019 levels by 2028
1: And just finally, Erin, and quickly, do you think housing advocates think that despite all of these legislative proposals that, you know, essentially the pandemic is going to suck all the dollars and all the attention out of the room still?
2: If we've seen anything, it's that this pandemic is going to make those two issues worse. It's going to exacerbate housing insecurity. There's projections that homelessness could increase by 20 percent throughout the state. So I think there's a huge focus to try to stop that from happening because we know that once people become homeless, it's a lot more expensive to rehouse someone than it is to keep people in their homes. I think that's one of the big reasons why there's this focus on trying to prevent people from becoming homeless, allowing people to, to not be evicted, to be able to pay back those missed rent payments over a longer period of time. And I think there will still be some focus on trying to reduce homelessness throughout the state. Of course, a lot of it depends on whether there's another stimulus bill and what happens with the economy. But the governor did steer $550 million in CARES Act funding to its Project Roomkey program that's turning hotels and motels into permanent housing for people who are homeless. You know, there's still 90 percent left unhoused, but it's a pretty significant chunk and it's a good start.
1: All right. That is KQED housing reporter Aaron Baldessari. Aaron, thanks so much. Thank you. As the coronavirus crisis continues, there's an even greater reliance on essential workers. In San Diego, a new report by the city and UCSD shows more than a third of the most critical essential workers are immigrants. KQED's Farida Javala Romero reports.
2: The study estimates that more than 68,000 San Diego workers in healthcare, food, and agriculture were born in other countries. That includes 4,000 nurses and nearly 2,000 doctors.
1: Foreign born workers, are absolutely essential to fighting the global pandemic.
2: Tom Wong, an associate professor of political science at UC San Diego, is co-author of the report.
1: More intentionality needs to be put into, especially by decision makers, how we can support frontline workers, regardless of immigration status, to keep them working. The
2: census figures Wong used were from before the coronavirus struck, and he says future studies will reflect the true impact of COVID on the city's workforce. For The California Report, i Javala Farida romero
1: COVID-19 is sweeping through San Quentin State Prison, where over a thousand inmates have tested positive for the virus, and one has died. The coronavirus is also spreading at several other prisons across California. At a hearing in Sacramento this morning, state senators are expected to look for answers and solutions. KQED's Julie Small reports.
3: In late May, 121 medically vulnerable inmates transferred to San Quentin from the California Institution for Men in Chino, which at the time had the largest outbreak of any prison in the state. The men had all tested negative for the virus, but after they got off the bus in Marin County, a few of the men tested positive. State Senator Nancy Skinner wants to know exactly what protocols were followed. Were they adequate? Were they enough? That's a different story. But clearly, they couldn't have been following them that thoroughly, and certainly, the transfer was botched. A negative test result is required before an inmate can be transferred, but at the time, there was no mention of how recent those test results needed to be. Turns out the results were three weeks old. But the transfer of inmates is not the only reason for a recent spike in outbreaks and deaths in state prisons across California. In papers filed in court, attorneys for the state acknowledged that employees were considered the main vector for spreading COVID-19. Prison officials started requiring staff to wear masks in April, but many inmates have said employees pull the masks down over their chins or refuse to wear them. People were expressing a ton of concern about the guards not wearing masks being totally callous about the risk. Colby Lenz advocates for inmates at the California Institution for Women. She says the first two women inmates there who tested positive for the virus were making masks in close contact with staff, who she believes also worked at the California Institution for Men nearby, where the virus is raging. They were working extremely long hours, seven days a week, 12 hours a day is what we were hearing and then sending them back to their units. 44-year-old April Harris was in one of those units, and she got sick too. They came to my door and told me that I was positive
1: for the coronavirus, and they moved me to isolation.
3: Harris's work cleaning the prison as a porter put her in contact with staff and all the surfaces used by other inmates. My job is to clean the shower, clean the toilets, clean the floor, clean the phones, clean the day
1: room, and sleep and mop and spray and wipe.
3: She says the three other dorm porters in her unit also got sick, among more than 160 women at the prison. The virus has also been tearing through Chukawala Valley State Prison in the Inland Empire. Over a 1,000 people incarcerated there have come down with COVID-19, and two have died. Philip Melendez says a childhood friend who got sick there in June told him he thinks the prison workers are carrying the virus in from outside.
1: Prison staff, medical staff, whatever, whoever's working in the prison, right? Eight hours and then they go. Three shifts per day. And one of the things that he was worried about, he was like, They're not testing.
3: Statewide, more than 700 prison employees have tested positive for COVID-19. Prisons have so far been screening staff for symptoms and checking temperatures. And a spokeswoman for the state prison system says the agency is working with the state health department to, quote, develop a comprehensive staff testing plan that will eventually involve ongoing testing of staff at all institutions. State Senator Nancy Skinner says mandatory testing should have been in place much earlier. It's preventable. It's wrong. It puts everyone that's in those facilities
0: at risk. It puts the entire every neighborhood in the state of California at risk because the people that work at our state prisons go home every day.
3: At today's hearing, she says she'll be asking the head of the prison system how he plans to contain the outbreak and end the deaths. For the California Report, I'm Julie Small.
1: A coronavirus vaccine being developed by a Southern California biotech lab is showing promising results in human trials. At least that's what Inovio Pharmaceuticals announced yesterday. But a series of lawsuits says the CEO of the company has intentionally misled investors for profit. KPBS reporter Taryn Mento has a story from San Diego.
4: In the early days of the pandemic, Innovio CEO Joseph Kim promoted the company's vaccine technology through TV appearances in a way that some investors now say was misleading. Here's Kim in February.
2: We're able to construct our vaccine, INO forty eight hundred, in about three hours. And March. By getting the just the DNA sequence of the virus we able to fully construct our vaccine within three hours.
4: Later, when the firm Citron Research tweeted that Inovio's three-hour vaccine development claim was, quote, ludicrous and called on the Securities and Exchange Commission to investigate, Inovio tweeted a clarification of Kim's statements. What the company had at the time was a, quote, vaccine construct rather than a vaccine. Now, investors who say they were misled by those statements have filed a series of lawsuits. The latest action came came in June. University of San Diego law professor David McGowan says there are three points a court would consider in this case.
0: An alleged misstatement, there's an alleged correction, and then there's an allegation of motive.
4: But there are a few facts that may benefit Inovio. For instance, the biggest stock price came after an appearance where Kim also said the company was nearing human testing.
0: Which would make sense, if you're an investor and you think that the closer you get to testing, the closer you might be to a product.
4: Enulvio delivered on the testing, but the lawsuit doubts the company actually had factual basis for the claim back then.
0: If you're
1: disregarding certain red flags or evidence indicating that your uh, statement is false, that can be considered sufficient to establish fraudulent intent.
4: That's UCLA law professor James Park. He says if the case moves forward, Enovio may have to show evidence that backs its statements. Park says these kinds of cases against pharma companies are tossed out nearly half the time. But he thinks there are enough questions that a judge may allow this one to go forward.
1: Surviving a motion to dismiss does not necessarily mean this is a good case. It only means that the court wants to learn more.
4: Novio says it will fight the claims and in the meantime is continuing to move forward on its vaccine. At the end of June, the company announced promising results from the first phase of human trials and said it will launch more testing by the summer. But Reuters reports financial analysts are skeptical because of a lack of details. For the California Report, I'm Taryn Mento in San Diego.
1: And that's the California Report for Wednesday, July 1st, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
3: Support for the California Report comes from California Earthquake Authority, a not-for-profit offering earthquake insurance to help Californians protect their financial futures. For more information, visit earthquakeauthority.com. Personal Capital, offering remote telefinance services with financial advisors and digital financial planning tools, personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems.
0: Support for KQED podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it.